0: Welcome to The Screen Queen, the show where I'll be talking about your favorite show or your favorite movie. You'll just have to find out what you're about to know. This is your Screen Queen, your host, Samantha Parrish. Hello there and welcome back to the show. This is your female Tarantino talking, your host, Samantha Parrish. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and if you're wondering why the episode that you're listening to sounds like I've eaten a bunch of Brillo pads. I am currently, like the Disturb song, and I am getting down with a sickness. But thankfully, I'm getting better, I'm doing better, and I just couldn't help myself that I wanted to get back into the podcast studio and get this episode about a movie that I've waited so long to watch, And now that I have, I really can't wait to share my thoughts about it. If you are unfamiliar with this movie, don't feel bad. This is a movie that is very tricky to reference because of its plot. And it's also a film that didn't get its recognition until much later on in its placement in cinema. This film came out in 1955, and it took until the 1970s, for the recognition to finally come in. When Night of the Hunter came out in 1955, people were not ready for this movie. When the film was playing, people walked out of the theater. And I kept thinking, well, that's strange considering the Night of the Hunter was in the genre that everyone was watching at the time, which was film noir. People could not get enough of film noir its impact on the stylized crime story is still even used to this day with films like John Wick. So, it made no sense why a film in the genre that was one of the biggest things in the cinema scene had people leaving the theater. And it was because of the plot. People were not ready for this film back in 1955. This is just a cut-and-dry cat-and-mouse story that's going on in The Night of the Hunter. So, looking at the plot, you can already see right up the bat why people had a problem with this movie. It's a serial killer posing as a preacher that marries a wealthy widow to get close to her to find out where her deceased husband buried the $10,000. And only the kids know where the money is buried. So right off the bat, there are several issues that people have taken with this movie. You have the Christian factor for the fact that you have a man that's posing as a man of God. When he's really not. And he's trying to kill two kids. You had threat factors in movies before. And you can have a plot like that today, not bat an eyelash, but... In a time frame like 1955 where there wasn't a extreme that was being shown in film. But audiences couldn't take it. and The Night of the Hunter is a novel before it became a movie. But the story itself within the novel is inspired by a serial killer named Harry Powers who was hanged in 1932 for the murder of two widows and three children in Clarksburg, West Virginia. With that crime story that was still fresh for a lot of people of a evil that existed, I, I can definitely see why no one was prepared for it if there were some audience members that knew where the Night of the Hunter came from. The legacy of The Night of the Hunter has done very well to this day. I remember seeing uh, clips of the character that Robert Mitchum played from the movie in various compilations of serial killer characters and evil characters and evil villains of all time, which is a high praise. And it's sad that most of the cast... And the director himself never got to see the legacy that The Night of the Hunter has. The director himself, Charles Lawton, he never made a movie again. This film is the only film he ever directed because of the response he got. I, I personally don't blame him. If I made something that I felt pushed the envelope too far, I, I would definitely not want to make another movie knowing could I make this happen again? Could I piss off an audience again accidentally? Could I get myself in worse trouble? You never really know what an audience is going to be comfortable with and what they're capable of and what their reaction is going to be. I say in almost all of my episodes on this show is you choose how you want to be entertained. That goes to show throughout any experience you have that whatever happens what your reaction is going to be your reaction even if it's not going to match anyone else's reaction and directors can't really predict what the reaction is going to be of the audience that they provide to it was reevaluated back in the 1970s in a attempt to look at some films that should have been given a fair shot and i can definitely see where a lot of our directors of today get the inspiration from. This film has influenced directors like Rainer Werner Fassbender, uh, Robert Altman, and of course, Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese himself, this was something I quickly put together that now I know why Robert Mitchum was in the remake of Cape Fear, I mean, I'm sure he about lost his bananas knowing he got to cast the person from the very movie that inspired him as a director. I really want to focus the time in this episode to talk about the character that Robert Mitchum plays in The Night of the Hunter. I remember watching the scene that introduced me to this movie was how he talked about his tattoos. He has hate and love on his knuckles and he'll say H-A-T-E on this hand, L-O-V-E on this hand and he will go into his descriptions about why there is hate on one hand and love on the other hand and what it has to do with biblical references. It's like, okay, this man already carved his character in a way that makes people believe he is a man of God with the way that he holds himself, to even go right down to, say, how he performs his duties as a Christian man, which we all know, (laughs) that's not true. Robert Mitchum just knocks it out of the park with how he makes this extremely layered character to be very alluring and deceptive so people will never catch on to his illusion. I can see why this character is cited as one of the greatest villains of all time. You have a character that is absolutely heartless. This man is willing to kill children to get money. No matter what it takes, he's fooled a lot of people. And throughout the film, you even see narcissistic elements in this film and it, uh, it makes me wonder if this is a film that was ahead of its time and is a film that can be used to explain what narcissistic behavior looks like. And I can give an example. The whole point of this movie is that he marries a wealthy widow just so he can get the $10,000 that is stashed somewhere. So what better way than to marry her? But it's sad that within seconds you know this woman is never going to be the same again because her mind has been warped by him just because of the way he talked to her. The scene where they're having their honeymoon night and she's so excited to have a man to help her raise the kids and that's going to love her and turns out, it's not going to happen. He, he berates her for being a woman. He says things to her like, you think I'm going to hold you and kiss you and do all those things and makes her feel bad for being a woman and wanting intimacy. He makes her think that's a bad thing, which is what fucking narcissists do, man. They make you feel bad about things you shouldn't feel bad about. And within that scene where she knows she has to submit, but she thinks it's because it's a it's a wife thing. You have to submit to a husband, not knowing like, no, 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 no. Husbands are not supposed to talk to their wives like that. But he says it in a way that it's supposed to be this way. And she rebukes the very essence of her own identity. She goes with him to all of these religious revivals and talks about how she regrets wearing makeup and that women need to be like her. She would go on to say things like, I regret wearing my face paint. It should not make me do this to myself. You women should not be wearing this paint on your face. Like, she talks just like him. She got controlled. She got her mind warped. It is a clear-cut example of narcissism in a film. It's a film way ahead of its time. It is crazy to think about how I never knew this film made the strongest impact of the movies that I've watched most of my life, really, because I've been a movie buff for most of my life. The next point that I'm going to talk about is a, a parallel that I found this film to be similar to another story, and I'm sure most of you that have listened to this have thought the same thing that I thought about When I hear a plot about a man trying to kill children to get money. If your guess was a series of unfortunate events, that was the same guess I had. When I was watching the movie, that was all I could think about. And it made me wonder if Lemony Snicket had pulled inspiration from this movie for a series of unfortunate events. And, unfortunately, that was not the event here. I found nothing. I looked up both pages. I scoured the author's pages. All I could find for what the inspiration was behind a series of unfortunate events was the books from Roald Dahl, which, I mean, that makes sense. But I was surprised. It just comes down to the fact that it was just an honest coincidence we're always going to have movies that come out that you can compare it to another story and it will have no connection of inspiration together. But I think those films can definitely go hand in hand in the same genre with it being a a mystery film. So if someone were to say that they wanted something that was like a series of unfortunate events, then The Night of the Hunter would be along those lines of a recommendation. This movie is really great, but when you really look at the plot of it all, it is a heartless movie. This is one of those films that does make you uncomfortable for the fact that you're basically watching the little boy in this movie try to get justice for his family and he goes absolutely unheard and he's dismissed because he's a little boy, which it's like what happened to the characters on a series of unfortunate events. Those kids had to make their own justice because they were dismissed by the adults that were supposed to protect them. All throughout the story, you do see other characters react to the Reverend and how they say how great he is and that he's going to help out Willa and help out her kids when they really don't know what's going on. It does serve as a real life parallel to what we don't know is going on in someone's life. And we just look at the outer surface and never think, what if there's something else going on? You want justice for these kids, especially the little boy who is just running on fumes, trying to save his family. He already lost his dad horrifically and his mom's been... Brainwashed, and then his little sister is about to be brainwashed, and he's the only one that sees what's going on. We've all been that person that knows something sinister is going on, and we explain our story to someone else, and it goes dismissed because of the latter audience already under the spell of someone else, and it feels like a like an isolating feeling knowing you're the only one that knows the truth and it is unheard and not even considered. This young boy goes to every adult that he believes is supposed to help him is supposed to protect him and they believe the reverend over him a newcomer over him, which still, that plays on to the whole narcissism element in this film about how someone can turn everyone else against one other person so easily. And the fact that he's a reverend, that's just a shoe in People are automatically trusting of someone they believe is a man of God. But in all of that madness finally comes some happiness, and that happiness is in the form of a character named Rachel Cooper, and that is the next point I'll be talking about is her character. She is my favorite character in the entire film. I've been waiting for something good to happen, and she is the good in the film, and just as a heads up, there are some scenes with this character that is going to give away some major plots of the movie. So if you have not seen it, I'm going to put a timestamp so that way you know where to skip to. Okay? Alright. Awesome. Rachel Cooper is introduced as the woman who takes in orphans. And she teaches them discipline. She teaches them how to make their own food. She is stern with them, but she's also very sensitive. The way this character interacts with the kids is absolutely amazing where she has this unspoken way of knowing that there's something going on in the lives of John and Pearl, the, the two kids, but she's not going to just rip it out of them. And I love that element to her character that she's maternal, but she's also going to treat these kids as young adults, that they're people, they have problems that their problems matter. Their feelings shouldn't be dismissed. It's a wonderful thing to see in a character like Rachel Cooper. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie, one of the girls she's adopted named Ruby approaches her to come clean about something that she's done. And Ruby explains that she hasn't been going into town to go take sewing lessons. She's been going to go talk to boys. And the way Rachel reacts is absolutely beautiful. I love how Rachel doesn't shame this young girl for doing what's natural in her evolution. That is such a strong parallel to what we saw earlier in the film with the Reverend shaming the character Willa, the widowed woman, for being a woman. This is another really good concrete point about how the Reverend and Rachel are very strong foils to each other of a hero and a villain. So to see a a scene like this, where Rachel doesn't act severe towards the girl, she just says, hey, you're becoming a woman, and that's perfectly okay. You did a perfectly normal thing. And I'm like, this is 1955, right? Am I watching the right movie? I hate to say it like that, but really, when you look at it, many women weren't written to be accepting and very open back in the 1950s. They were just written as the love interest or they were written as a villainous and that they shouldn't be messed with. This was a way of addressing a woman's evolution in a film in 1955. It's beautiful. It it aged so well. I think about that scene often for the fact that it tackled the topic so well about what it's like to go into your maturity as a woman. And I love a little part in that scene where Rachel says she's going to give her one of her brooches as like a, a way to go into womanhood by wearing something that women wear. I, I thought that was such a nice little touch. But then things get amazing with Rachel's character when she meets Reverend Harry Powell. There is a strong foil between Reverend Harry Powell and Rachel Cooper. It's like, all right, this man has met his match. They both have a faith in God. They both are very headstrong. They're both very stern. Except the justice part is what keeps them different, which is amazing to see for the fact about how you know there is a character that can against these mind games that he creates. He can't use his same song and dance like he did in the town. He's dealing with a different type of person that he can't manipulate with his narcissistic tactics. In the scene where the Reverend finally tracks down where John and Pearl are, it is a... it's an intense scene of social chicken of trying to figure the other person out. He tells Rachel that he's been looking for his kids for days and he's been so worried because they're such rotten children that he had a a wife that was just lost to the sins and everything and she's listening to this whole story with this look of disgust on her face because she knows he's lying his ass off and it's just beautiful to see someone finally get called out for who they really are and she doesn't hesitate it's the savior you've been wanting to see in this movie knowing that john and pearl are safe with someone that has treated them like adults and will not be swayed she's a very smart woman that's not going to fall for his tactics throughout the entire duration of that scene he has tried to gaslight her manipulate her and it doesn't work It's absolutely beautiful to see, but it's also extremely intense because now you know this is still a serial killer. How is Rachel going to protect these kids from a killer? Normally, I'm not really a fan of films in the 1950s. Not because I don't appreciate those films, but... Sometimes films in a different era are hard to grasp because they are a product of their current time placement. Because it was a film in the 1950s, it's going to do everything in accordance to its time era of what made sense at that moment, what the current society was. And when you look at a film like that today, it can be a little bit harder to grasp knowing how the times have changed. Knowing this is the way things were in society back then. For a film set in 1955, this doesn't feel like it's a film set in the 50s. It doesn't feel like it's a film of the 50s. I don't see a lot of those elements present. It truly does feel like a timeless film while it's also a